Appendix 3, Professor W.C. Allen, who was Professor of Old Testament at Oxford, and other leading authorities on the Kingdom of God. The objective analysis of the Kingdom of God in Matthew, provided by the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, ought to serve as a much-needed guide to all our thinking about the Kingdom. The Kingdom is the heart of the Christian Gospel. I quote, The Kingdom, the central subject of Christ's doctrine, with this he began his ministry, Matthew 4, verse 17, and wherever he went, he taught it as good news or gospel. Matthew 4, verse 23. The kingdom he taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. After his ascension, he would come as Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 16, verse 17. Matthew 19, verse 28. And Matthew 24, verse 30 and would sit on the throne of his glory. Then the twelve apostles should sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's in Matthew 19, verse 28. In the meantime, he himself must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. How else could he come on the clouds of heaven? And the disciples were to preach the good news of the coming kingdom. Matthew 10 verse 7 and Matthew 24 verse 14. Among all nations, making disciples by baptism. Matthew 28 verse 18. The body of disciples thus gained would naturally form a society bound by common aims. Hence the disciples of the kingdom would form a new spiritual Israel. Matthew 21, verse 43. That's from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, Volume 2. The same authority goes on to say, in view of the needs of this new Israel of Christ's disciples, who were to await his coming on the clouds of heaven, it is natural that a large part of the teaching recorded in the Gospel should concern the qualifications required in those who hoped to enter the kingdom when it came. Thus the parables convey some lesson about the nature of the kingdom and the period of preparation for it. It should be sufficiently obvious that if we ask what meaning the parables had for the editor of the first gospel, the answer must be that he chose them because they taught lessons about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God, in the sense in which that phrase is used everywhere in the gospel about the kingdom which was to come when the Son of Man came upon the clouds of heaven. Thus the parable of the sower illustrates the varying reception met with by the good news or gospel of the kingdom as it is preached amongst men. That of the tares also deals not with the kingdom itself but with the period of preparation for it. At the end of the age the Son of Man will come to inaugurate his kingdom. There's nothing here nor elsewhere in this gospel 
to suggest that the scene of the kingdom is other than the present world renewed, restored, and purified. The same view of the kingdom is expressed by the author of this article on Matthew in his commentary on Matthew, as to say, Professor W.C. Allen, the international critical commentary on Matthew. My comment is this. The last sentence of our quotation makes the excellent point that Matthew does not expect believers to, quote, go to heaven, but that Jesus will come back to rule with them on a renewed earth. The perceptive reader of the New Testament will note the striking difference between the biblical view of the kingdom and what in post-biblical times was substituted for it, a departure of the faithful at death to a realm removed from the earth. The kingdom Jesus taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. Another quotation from W.C. Allen. In Matthew and in the New Testament as a whole, the kingdom of God is conceived first of all as something in the future. So say leading analysts of the gospel records. We may add a further statement from a recognized authority on Luke. It cannot really be disputed that Luke means by the kingdom a future entity. The spiritualizing interpretation according to which the kingdom is present in the spirit and in the church is completely misleading. It is the message of the kingdom that is present, which in Luke is distinguished from the kingdom itself. Luke knows nothing of an imminent, that's to say already present, development on the basis of the preaching of the kingdom. That's a quotation from Hans Konzelmann in his book, The Theology of St. Luke. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia gets the emphasis on the future correctly. I quote, The kingdom of God is at hand, had the inseparable connotation, judgment is at hand. And in this context, repent, in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, must mean to avoid being judged. Hence, our Lord's teaching about salvation had primarily a future content, positively admission into the kingdom of God and negatively deliverance from the preceding judgment. So the kingdom of God is the highest good of Christ's teaching. Man's nature is to be perfectly adapted to his spiritual environment and man is to be, quote, with Christ, Luke 22, verse 30, and with the patriarchs, Matthew 8, verse 11, whatever the kingdom is, it is most certainly not exhausted by a mere reformation of the present order of material things. I quote Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark gives a brief summary of the preaching of Jesus. Preaching and good news are Mark's favorite expressions. The call of Jesus is accurately summed up in Mark 1, 15, where the association of repentance and faith 
reveals the language of the church, as in Acts 5, verse 31, Acts 11, verse 18, and Acts 20, verse 21. Mark's concern is to make clear that in this preaching, Jesus continues to go forth into the world, and this call, therefore, is being directed also to the one who reads this gospel today. Consequently, this section serves as a caption to the whole gospel. The kingdom of God, another quotation. When Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is near, he's adopting a concept which was coined in the Old Testament. Although it denotes God's sovereignty over creation, as in Psalm 103 verse 19 and Psalm 145 verse 11 and following, it refers primarily to God's unchallenged sovereignty in the end time, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Judaism spoke of the reign or kingdom of God which comes after the annihilation of every foe and the end of all suffering. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived first of all as something in the future. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 47. Mark 14, verse 25. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43. And chapter 20, verse 21. Luke 22, verse 16 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. And so on. The kingdom of God which comes from God Mark 9, verse 1, Matthew 6, verse 10, Luke 17, verse 20, and Luke 19, verse 11. Therefore, it is something that man can only wait for, as in Mark 15, verse 43, something that man can seek, Matthew 6, verse 33, and something that man will receive, Mark 10, verse 15, compare Luke 12, verse 32, and inherit 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following, and Galatians 5, verse 21, and James 2, verse 5. Something that man in those verses can seek, but is not able to create it by himself. In the acts and words of Jesus, the future kingdom has come upon them already. It is decided at that very moment whether or not he will ever be in the kingdom. Repentance is nothing less than a wholehearted commitment to the good news of the kingdom. That's from the Good News According to Mark by Eduard Schweitzer. Ernest Scott, professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary, makes good points but seems uncertain about the kingdom. It seems almost impossible to define the Christian gospel. Sometimes it's identified with our religion as a whole, sometimes with some element in it which is regarded as central. To accept the gospel is to believe in the atonement or the love of God or the revelation in Christ 
or the fact of human brotherhood. Yet it is well to remember that the word which is now used so loosely, that's the word gospel, had at the outset a meaning which was clearly understood. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel underwent a marvelous development, but the good news has always been essentially what it was at the first, the announcement of the kingdom. It is evident from the manner in which Jesus made the announcement that he took up an idea which was already familiar. He did not explain what he meant by the kingdom, for he could assume that all his hearers were looking forward to it. Their hope for it had been newly stimulated by John the Baptist. They had long been thinking of the kingdom and wondering when it would come, and a prophet, John the Baptist, had now arisen who declared that it was close at hand. In the religion of Israel, we must seek for the immediate origin of the kingdom idea of Jesus. The idea persisted long after the royal house was firmly established that the reigning king was only the vice-regent of the invisible king. Israel had been chosen by a unique God who was known as yet only by his own people, but was nonetheless king of the whole earth. The day was coming when all nations would own God's sovereignty. On the highest levels of prophecy, the purified Israel of the future is conceived as attracting all nations by its high example to the service of the one God. More often, it is assumed that Israel, when fully disciplined, will be restored to God's favor and advanced by him to the sovereign place. As king of this preeminent people, God will reign at last over the world. On the one hand, God is already king. On the other hand, it is recognized that the kingdom lies in the future. They look for a coming day when God will overcome all usurping powers and assert himself as king. So the prophets keep before them the vision of a new age when the kingdom of God will be fully manifested. In that happy time, Israel will be exalted, the cause of justice will be established, the earth full of the glory of the Lord, nature in that day, will be restored to its pristine glory, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and cattle will feed in large pastures. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. God and his Messiah will reign from Mount Zion, and all nations will serve him. King over a righteous nation, God will extend his dominion over the whole earth. The New Testament is based on the Old. Jesus came, one, to proclaim the kingdom of God, 
Luke 4, verse 43. Number two, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Romans 15, verse 8. Number three, to give us an understanding that we might know God. That's 1 John 5, verse 20. And fourthly, Jesus came to make people righteous, not only by his death, but by his knowledge. Isaiah 53, verse 11. In post-biblical times, the original faith in the gospel of the kingdom suffered massive alteration, turning the gospel into something quite different. Greeks, rather than Jews, became leaders in the church and they imported alien Greek philosophy into the church's teachings. This alteration of the original faith led finally in the 1500s to the Reformation, which was a plea to go back to the Bible. But these reformers did not fully recapture the gospel of the kingdom. The process of restoration is furthered when people earnestly seek the original meaning of the kingdom of God as preached by the original Jesus. The gospel itself is all about the kingdom of God, and the word gospel should never be divorced from the kingdom. I quote, the gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom announced by Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and now proclaimed by the church, as from the Harper Collins Bible Dictionary. The gospel, as most of my church friends and I have known it in the past, is so small a part of the whole deal that it is hard to call it an accurate gospel at all. Perhaps this limited gospel message, as proclaimed by modern Christians, explains the limited impact it is having on America today. That's a quotation from Gary Burge in the NIV application commentary. Another quotation, Stanley Grentz has reviewed the failed attempts of evangelical theology to fire the imagination of the modern world. He argues for the kingdom of God as the new organizing center of all that we say and do, as from the book Revisioning Evangelical Theology. Another quotation. Over the course of the past year, faculty from each of Fuller's three schools have met together to discuss the question what is the gospel? A dozen years ago, the late Robert Gulich made the question the topic of his inaugural address, noting that years of professional work has returned him again and again to this fundamental subject. Gulich told the story of an encounter with the founder, Charles Fuller, after a seminary forum about the inspiration of Scripture as its topic. Fuller commented that he longed for the day when the seminary would host a forum on the question, what is the gospel? That's from Theology, News and Notes, 
Fuller Theological Seminary, spring of 2004, I add my comment. This is an amazing admission. The fact is that they really are not sure what the gospel is, and yet they say they are saving people by preaching, quote, it, whatever it is. The plain fact is that the gospel of the kingdom, including, of course, the ratifying blood of Jesus and his resurrection, is the gospel. Until the heaven at death teaching, which is Plato's and not Jesus, until this is dropped, how can progress be made? And how can we be sure that anyone is saved by believing the teaching of Plato and calling it the teaching of Jesus? Is God as sloppy as we are with our thinking? Is he so indulgent that he really does not care as long as we are sincere, although ignorant of the nature of man, his destiny, and the identity of God and Jesus? Another quotation. It is a serious error to hold that the kingdom of God plays no important role in apostolic Christianity. Such a view both lacks historical perspective and is at variance with the entire thought of the literature of apostolic Christianity. The very name of the new movement, Christianity, would suggest the contrary opinion. So far from the eschatological kingdom of God being a secondary element in the early church, it is its great conditioning belief. The preaching of the first evangelist was not a call to ethical ideals or an argument as to certain truths. Rather, it was the proclamation of a message as regards the person of the Messiah. There is, of course, no question that the early church believed that Jesus was the Christ who had gone to heaven, whence he would come to introduce the new age and the new kingdom. This was the very core of the entire Christian movement. To think of Jesus as deliberately using a term with a meaning different from what it would have been for others is not only to raise a question as to Jesus' morals, but as to his capacity as a teacher. That's a quotation from Shiloh Matthews, professor of theology at Chicago Seminary. In his book, The Messianic Hope, in the New Testament. This is good advice to evangelists. Winston Churchill said, and I quote, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver, hit the point once, then come back and hit it again, then hit it a third time, a tremendous whack.